Well, plus I feel like if you're, um, you know, another comedian uh, I invited to open for me, and I said, don't don't tell people that you're a comedian, and don't just get out there. You're the guy who's introducing me, and if you're funny, people will laugh. But I, I feel like nine times out of ten, if I'm backstage and I'm getting an introduction. And people say, get ready to laugh. I'm backstage thinking, you're killing me here. I, w- I would rather it be somebody's idea to laugh. I don't, I don't want that, that kind of a setup. If someone says to me, yeah, you're never, you're, you know, this is the funniest person ever, to, then I cross my arms immediately. And I think, yeah, we'll see about that. Hello, everyone. Welcome to 15 Minutes, a podcast about fame, episode 59. Episode 59 also marks the end of our second year anniversary month, and I'm very pleased to bring you the guest who was right around our first anniversary, David Sedaris, back for another conversation uh, to go along with his new book, Calypso. Beyond introducing him as a best-selling author and someone you really should see perform live if you get a chance, I'd like to read a couple of short segments that will help clarify things we talk about in the conversation. Um, The first is from Theft by Finding, which is the first volume of his diaries that came out about a year ago. Uh, The first volume ranges from 1977 to 2002. And because I didn't know if I I was going to be able to get a copy, it was pre-pub date. Uh, The publishing date for Calypso was yesterday, May 29th, 2018. I didn't know that I was going to get my hands on a copy. So I was going back and re-listening to his diaries, which I have on audiobook as I drove around our little valley. And the day before we spoke, I did get my hands on a copy of the book and I sped read it. Been a couple days before we talked, but I was also listening to Theft by Finding, this first volume of Diaries. So I was I was experiencing David Sedaris at age thirty four and sixty something at the same time, and right before we spoke, I was listening to the end of nineteen ninety two and beginning of ninety three in his diary, uh, which was a moment at which he started to experience rather grand success. And I'd like to read one entry from that. December 24th, 1992, Raleigh. Yesterday morning, my story aired on NPR's Morning Edition. Ira and I had been on the phone the night before, trying to decide which cuts to make. I have an allergic reaction to my voice. But the singing was all right. Hugh's friend, Marion, phoned, after the 740 broadcast and said how much she liked it. A minute later, I got a call from a switchboard operator who was late for work on account of sitting in her parked car and listening to me. She said she'd already phoned NPR to say good things, but thought she'd reach out to me as well. They played the story again at 940, and then I was called by William, Alan, and several strangers. The moment I'd start talking to someone, call waiting would act up. 
At 10, I left for the first of today's four cleaning jobs, and when I returned at 6, my machine was full of messages, most of them from people I don't know, who'd look me up in the phone book. A woman from Oregon called, a guy who runs a theater in Philadelphia, a writer for a TV show, two NPR stations left messages saying they were flooded, their word, with calls from people wanting to get in touch with me. A stranger from Rochester called, stuttering, asking for a tape. It was all I had ever wanted. Then Hugh and I left for the airport. But that's one entry, and I did want to share one more. March 9th, 1993, New York. Roger Donald called from Little Brown to say he would like to negotiate a two-book deal. To celebrate, I bought a denim shirt and thought it amazing how quickly one's life can change. I never thought I'd want a denim shirt. And here's a passage from the essay Little Guy that we talk about in the conversation from the new book Calypso. I was sitting around the house one evening when I suddenly wondered how tall Rock Hudson was. It's not that often that I think of him, but I'd recently rewatched the movie Giant, so he was on my mind. One of the things I'll never understand is why a search on my computer might be different from a search on someone else's, my sister Amy's, for instance. She'll go to Google, type in, what does a 50-year-old woman look like? And summon pictures I can't believe they allow on the internet. Unlocked, where just anyone can see them. I don't mean Playboy shots, but the sort you'd find in Hustler. It's as if she'd asked, what does the inside of a 50-year-old woman look like? I did the same search and got pictures of Meg Ryan and Brooke Shields smiling. I said to Hugh, this computer of mine is so wholesome. And you'll soon hear why that bared reading. I also, at the risk of being self-serving, because it is self-serving, so I guess risk is, is the wrong word. I, I want to talk about something that's in the conversation, so I can't, uh, and the conversation's edited, edited, and it's with Ed, so I can't take it out, and I don't want to, but it needs some clarification. At one point, we talk about uh, the late, wonderful writer and human being, David Rakoff, and I talk about how I knew David in college, and then we were estranged for many years, and then he came back into my life. And what I didn't mention in the conversation was just how amazingly gracious he was when he came back into my life. He had become a very you know, noted, celebrated, dare I say famous writer, and I was in San Francisco doing my thing. And he emailed me out of the blue. I don't think it was as out of the blue as it might seem in that we share a closer friend in common named James. And I'm thinking James, uh, I don't, it's all very vague. I have a terrible memory, but maybe James had sent David uh, a book, a picture book with some text about a dog named Bo, called Bozarts, a dog of mine who became a neighborhood hero in the mission in San Francisco and an art star for a little while. But David wrote me and told me how much he had loved the book and that he had read my short story close 
and asked if I was ever coming back to New York, if I ever came back to New York, and whether we have a drink sometime. And so I wanted to bring that up, that he, he out of the blue, contacted me to, to, to say nice things about my work, as, as if he almost knew that I carried around a certain bitterness that we'll talk about, you'll hear about in the conversation with David Sedaris. There's one more part to this story that has to do with my weird and awful memory, and I'd love to hear from someone to help me clear this up out there in radio land, podcastio land. After that, David R. and I would email and try to meet up for a drink when I was back visiting in New York. And we had several false starts. Uh, I had to cancel once. I think he was out of town once. But I have a memory that is not marked by email or anything but memory that we finally did have a drink at a bar on the corner of 23rd and right down the block from the Chelsea Hotel, uh, 7th, that there was a newly refurbished, kind of somewhat mod, but somewhat, somewhat like oak and brass rail kind of bar. And we met in between my rushing around the city and had a beer, glass of wine, I don't remember, and said hello, and then went our separate ways. But I, there's part of me that wonders, I sometimes remember dreams as if they were memories and I construct them. What I'd like to know from any of you is if you remember that bar. I don't think there's, there's a bar like that on that corner now, although I don't spend much time in Chelsea anymore. So give me a shout out, people, if you know that that, that, that was there, and then I will know that that did happen. <laughs> All right. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy my recent conversation with David Sedaris. Hi, Jamie. Hi, David. I, in the last couple of days, have been listening to the diaries while I speed read through Calypso, which I got um, from Catherine just the other day. Uh, and I happened last night, as I drove through New England, to be listening to you to 1992 to 93. And thinking about it while I read Calypso made me think of, of the old adage that bankruptcy happens slowly and then all at once and it seems like success happened for you in that way that right then at the end of 92 and into 93 you suddenly book deal new yorker npr denim shirt <laughs> <laughs> i love that um and then you 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 wrote and when you spoke it in the audio you say it's all i ever wanted and there's a certain melancholy to that in that these things seem to be all happening at once, but it's still, it, it, it's, I don't know. I'm just wondering what, do you remember what that felt like? Yeah. I mean, it felt, uh, I mean, it's a little bit scary because then you think, oh, look, I just got what I wanted. Now what? Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, you're glad when, when it happens, you're very glad to have it. But I mean, I guess part of you thinks like, Oh, now, will my, the rest of my life be downhill from here? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I could see that. And 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 uh, and, but I I think I stopped dreaming in that way at that point, right? Because if I was riding my bike, and if I was taking a walk, I mean, if I was, or if I was cleaning my house, 
if my mind was was free to wander, I fantasized about going on a book tour. I fantasized about having a book published. I fantasized about being on the radio. I fantasized about being in a room and people say, look, I think that's, <laughs> that's it, look, that's, I was in Calgary the day before yesterday, walking down the street and I heard these women say, that was David Sedaris, what? But they didn't say who? She said, <laughs> she said what? Um, uh, and that's all I ever dreamed about. So to, to get it, it's, and I guess you start thinking, but, but that's all, but I got what I wanted. Mm-hmm. Like, so now when I walk along, I, I don't fantasize about that because I already have it, but mm-hmm. I don't think, I don't fantasize about winning a Tony award. I don't, I don't really, I don't want a Tony award. Mm-hmm. I don't fantasize about, you know, uh, and the Academy award for best picture goes to, <laughs> because I don't, I, I don't want those things. Yeah enough to pursue them. That said, do you get a tingle when you hear those two women whispering? Yeah, it's nice. I mean, it's what my childhood self wanted. Yeah. And it doesn't bother me. I mean, the amount of attention that I get, it's it's nothing compared to, you know, what you would get if you did a shampoo commercial. <laughs> you know. Yeah. yeah. And it's just well-meaning people who just want to come up at a restaurant and say, you know, uh, your books, you know, mean a lot to me, and I'm delighted to hear that. I can tell. I've, you know, as you may recall, I've, I've, I've had you sign a couple times, and you, you take so much. You're so generous with everyone in the line, uh, which is really nice. I, it, I, I would imagine it just can get very long at the end. Well, but see, that's what I wanted too. I wanted people to stand in line to say how much they loved me. <laughs> uh, uh, should I pretend I don't want that? <laughs> and and I'm always confused. But you know, when a lot of people don't like it, or they'll say, "Well, I'll sign books for 20 people." I know this woman who who said, "I can't sign books for more than 20 minutes." She said because the audience, you know, people come up. And then I just take on all of their problems and I take on all of their, uh, their traumas and it's exhausting. It's physically exhausting. And I'm thinking, well, you're doing something wrong. I mean, (laughs) I can have somebody stand in front of me and cry about a miscarriage they had 10 minutes later, I'm back at the hotel. I sleep like a baby. (laughs) It wasn't my miscarriage. Well, I, I don't, I mean, sometimes people will tell you, Oh, I don't know, like a sad story or a, I mean, an interesting, I mean, there's a perfect kind of, it's a perfect length of conversation, I think. You know, like if you're at a party and you know you're at a party and you're talking to somebody and then you talk to them for a minute and then you think, what happens when this isn't interesting anymore? Mm-hmm. And what happens when I want to get away or they want to get away? How are we going to do that? Mm-hmm. Right? How are we going to work that out? But this is easy because I just push the book back to you and we're finished. <laughs> and it usually works. Yeah. Um, I mean, I can really count on, well, generally speaking, I find you set your pace and then you can't change your pace. So I have a friend in Los Angeles and I met him in a reading years ago. And he, I said, what do you do for a living? He said, 
I'm looking for a job. I can't. I want to work in show in entertainment law, and I can't get a job. So I said, well, let's see if we can't get you a job. So I brought him on stage with me in L.A. And I said, this is Drew, and he wants a job in entertainment law. And I asked him some questions on stage. And then afterwards, a lot of people gave him their card, but he didn't get a job out of it. So a year later, I said, let's try this again. And when he walked to the podium, I said, you may not have noticed, but Drew has a limp. I said, that's because he's handicapped. And some of you in the far back of the theater can't see it, but he's really good looking. Now, I said, you and I, we all know most handicapped people are ugly. I said, but not Drew. So if you hire him, you tick that box that says handicapped person in my office and good looking young man in my office. And he got a job at MGM. Oh, my God. So now every time I go to Los Angeles, he, he buys like 15 books to have signed for his associates. And so that can take a long time. And so people who were in line think, okay, that's how much time we get. And so it's really hard to break that pace. And it just occurred to me on this last trip, I thought, you know, I think I'll meet him in the dressing room before because that's easier to do it there than to set that kind of a pace with the audience. I mean, with a book signing line. Yeah, I I feel like people are usually pretty... Generous and, and yes, it must be nice to have people want to tell you you're you're my favorite writer or whatever. Um, one great thing I saw is last year when George Saunders had such a huge onslaught of attention for his last novel, Lincoln and the Bardo. I went to a reading and it was it was the longest book line I've ever seen. No offense, yours is really long. Um, but I waited towards the very end because we had just spoken for this show and I wanted to say hello and after this like three hours or more of whatever a young man maybe freshman in college came up and he very shyly tried to get his book signed and run off and George stopped him and, and asked him about himself and after all that time and I just thought that's great um, I, I like the uh, I really like the ep- your episode with George, and I thought it was really good. He's such a wonderful person. He is a really really wonderful person, and he he I I love the way he talks about having to be uh, brought down from being full of shit after mm-hmm. success. Uh, yeah, no, he was saying how when he goes on a book tour, you know, it's not natural to be getting that attention, and then it fucks you up in a really fundamental way. And lets you believe you're worthy of all that attention. And see, I feel that when I'm on every tour and then I come home and then he will have to say to me, like, you're not on tour anymore. And I finished my tour in the fall and then I was going to a um, an event. Um, somebody was doing an event at the uh, Royal Festival Hall or something like that in London. And I got – Hugh and I were going – and I got dressed, and Hugh said, you're not the one on stage tonight. Mm-hmm. And, and I looked at what I was wearing, and I was like, right. You were a little dandified. The tails were too much. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think I may know the, well, you wore something with tails at a reading uh, recent, uh, a couple years ago. Well, this is a jacket I got that's made out of two jackets, split down the middle and sewn together. And one half has a tail and the other half doesn't. Yeah, I, I think you talked about it or a jacket like it, some bizarre piece like that. <laughs> um, 
Yeah. But it's always our show if we want it to be, to an extent. Yeah, but sometimes you don't want to take focus away from the person who's on stage, you know. But it's a, but you have to kind of, um, it isn't natural to get that amount of attention. And, but it feels really good to me. But again, it would deform you if, if, if it was all the, who was it that said, um, oh, it was, a, it was an article that I was reading somewhere or other, I think about, it was an article about Donald Trump and there was a quote in there and it was, um, it was by, uh, okay, John Updike and it was like celebrity is a mask that eats away at the face. Is that what it is? It's a John Updike quote and it was in the New York Times and, or, or the, or the New Yorker and it was an article about Trump. Hmm. Wow. That's right up my alley, isn't it? Uh, thanks. I, I getting you know I remember last time we talked and about the 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 fantasy of being you know uh, acclaimed enough that you get acclaim and not so much that you can't be anonymous I find that I'm noticing since then in your writing that you really yeah uh, I feel like you would never want to ever you not one you would never want to give up the anonymity of of speaking to people in airports or other places, even though they drive you crazy. Wait, first I'm going to read that whole quote to you because my friend just found it. Celebrity is a mask that eats into the face. As soon as one is aware of being somebody, to be watched and listened to with extra interest, input ceases and the performer goes blind and deaf in his over animation. Let's try that again. Celebrity is a mask that eats into the face. As soon as one is aware of being somebody, to be watched and listened to with extra interest, input ceases, and the performer goes blind and deaf in his over-animation. Mm-hmm. Ow! Mm-hmm. Ain't it the truth? Ain't it the truth? Ain't it the truth? It's, it's the world we're living in. Uh, a version of that that, that I, I felt as you were saying it is when I've been on stage and I get a laugh, I immediately stop being funny. Because the huh. self-consciousness not, doesn't blind me, but it, it, has, it hits me like a deer in the headlights. And I feel un- unworthy and then can't be funny anymore. It's one of the reasons my performance huh. career had a limit uh, to it. Yes, you don't seem to have that problem on stage. Well, you know, there's always a danger because... Uh, a couple of times on this last tour that I just finished, I would meet people one way or the other. Like one night I was signing books for this guy and he was, um, we got to talking and it turned out that he did some stand up, which I, I wouldn't have pegged him as that guy, you know? And I said, well, why don't you do some, why don't you open for me? Why don't you do get up there in 10 minutes and do some stuff? And, uh, and he did, and he kind of, it was interesting how he kind of became a completely different person when he hit the mic than he was backstage. And I don't think he'd ever performed in front of that many people before. But it was interesting to watch him. I have a little period and you know, when I do Q&A, and just before, after the reading and before the Q&A, I usually do some shtick, you know, that, it, that I, I, I hone throughout the course of a tour. Um, but that's, 
um, the only time that I really just try to talk and get a laugh out of what I'm saying. I mean, normally I would do it from when I'm reading. Right. And I don't really trust it. Because when you do get a big laugh, you think, God, I would have had to work a month to get that laugh on paper. Mm-hmm. But instead, I just said it, and I got a bigger laugh. Yeah. But you, do you want to become that person? Do you want to become a comedian? I mean, nothing wrong with no, I, you know, I, but I don't. It's not what I had in mind for myself. Exactly. I I tried it for a year in San Francisco after a you know after doing performance stuff, dance company and monologue, and and it was miserable it, because it was all about trying to you know laugh, get a laugh, and then another laugh, another laugh, and that. Well, plus I feel like if you're, um, you know, another comedian. Uh, I invited to open for me, and I said, "Don't don't tell people that you're a comedian, and don't just get out there. You're the guy who's introducing me, and if you're funny, people will laugh. Mm-hmm. But I, I feel like nine times out of ten, if I'm backstage and I'm getting an introduction, and people say, "Get ready to laugh," I'm backstage thinking, "You're killing me here." <laughs> I, w- I would rather it be somebody's idea to laugh. I don't yeah. I don't want. That that kind of a setup. If someone says to me, yeah, "You're never, you you, this is the funniest person ever," to, then I cross my arms immediately, and I think, "Yeah, we'll see about that." Yeah, yeah. I I love doing things like hosting. I'm about to uh, do the first live recording of of this show, but it's just going to be like a variety show of readers, performers, and musicians, and I'm just going to introduce them and play some clips from the first two years. But emceeing is so great because you don't have to try to do anything except move the show along and get the next person mm-hmm. up. And if something funny comes up, that I I, I don't I don't freeze up in that situation. Um, and that that's just so much fun because I'm just. Fac- Where are you going to do it? Uh, at a little. Uh, a bu- there's a big uh, arts and entertainment complex that's grown in the the gigantic town of Greenfield, right next door to our tiny town of Turner's Falls. And there's a basement bar called the Wheelhouse. It's perfect. You know, it seats maybe sixty with another twenty, so it, it should be full enough with no matter how many people come. And it's super intimate, low ceiling dive basement bar. Uh, they offered me a bigger space. I, I don't want that. And it, and the other space had a raised stage, and I didn't want that either. It should oh. be really fun. Um, I like a raised stage. Well, if I were up there performing myself, but this, I want it to be a little more intimate. It's raised like six inches. Um, when you, so the person who you brought up on stage, the first person you were talking about, you had just met him. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about risks for a second, because I was reading uh, Calypso, the piece uh, the other day, uh, not the other day, a few hours ago. Um, and so you took a risk bringing that person up on stage is my, is my point. And you let a stranger perform surgery on you in their home. We didn't do it in her home. She took me to, uh, she took me to an office and did, it there and did it there, but she was a doctor. She wasn't a surgeon, but she was a doctor. And she said, you know, look, if I open you up and it looks like it's above my pay grade, well, it's, stitch you up and you know send you on your way but i saw her i was in she lives in el paso and i was there a couple weeks ago and we went out to dinner and you know what it was too that she was funny 
And when I met her, she was funny. And she just, I immediately liked her. So I didn't have to talk. There was nothing really to talk myself into, you know. Um, it just seemed like a really good idea to say yes. There are people we just immediately trust. Well, you know, I was in Washington, D.C. a few weeks ago, and a woman came, and she has her own company, and she makes cookies, right? So she said, I brought you a bag of chocolate chip cookies. And I can't eat chocolate, but I didn't say, I'll tell her that. I didn't want to embarrass her, right? Mm -hmm. And so I waited till she left. Until at, she was pre-show signing, and I waited. As a post-show signing, I'm sorry, it wasn't D.C., it was Nashville. I brought the, put the cookies on the table, and I said to people, would you like a cookie? Where did it come from? And I said, a woman baked, baked them for me. Oh, no, I'm not going to have one of those. It could be poisoned. And I just thought, you know, I'm so glad I'm not you. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad I'm not... Why would somebody go through all that trouble to poison me with chocolate chip cookies? I mean, when you think about it, really, that's like, is there, you know, I bet, yeah. I bet you, I bet you two kids yeah. have had, <laughs> have had razor blades in their apples. Yeah, I know. Right. Yeah. But now you can't trust any apple. There could be a razor blade lurking inside of it. I don't actually think that there is. And I don't think that there are any more pedophiles at work today than there mm -hmm. were at any previous time either. I don't think there's any bigger chance that your child's going to be snatched off the street yep. now than there was in 1962. Well, it's so much more hyped now. Yeah. Right. It's just the fear industry. Yeah. Yeah. I wish you had told me, I wish I had heard that about you, from you about the cookies before uh, one of the many uh, little bits of money earning I do is I, I I'm an academic coach at a prep school near here uh, a few nights a week, and I sometimes eat in the dining hall. And the other night I was eating in the dining hall, and some kid had left a half a bag of sour Skittles. And I don't usually allow myself to buy sour Skittles, but I really love sour Skittles, and I really I wrestled with whether, like, did that student leave the sour Skittles because someone spit in the sour Skittles or something, and I didn't take the Skittles. I mean, sometimes, you know, sometimes, you know, sometimes you would be right not to eat something like that, you know, <laughs> depending on, depending on where you are. But I mean, I think to, to apply all your fears to every situation, I don't know what that really serves ultimately. I mean, I feel like so much happens just if you say yes yeah you mean in life yeah yeah it's taken me a long time to get there i i just took a writing job that i didn't really have experience doing this kind of you know just just you know writing copy for a college or something and they said yo yeah you can do this and i, I immediately was thinking of ways that i would say i'm, I'm not real i don't i don't think i you know but I just did it. Well, sometimes, like, I'll be doing a show and some drunk person will come up and say, I'm going to take it. I'm going to say it. You're going to say something like that. I don't, I don't say yes. Because everything inside of me says, I mean, I can't bear to spend 45 seconds with that person. Right. So, Well, yeah. That goes back to instinct. Knowing who to trust. It, when you were talking about the reading, I was reminded of, um, do you know the, uh, the writer Rebecca Solnit? No. Um, she's a great political 
uh, writer. She she uh, wrote the book, uh, the essay, Men Explain Things to Me, which has led to the, the word mansplaining. And, uh, but she's, she's just terrific, and she uh, has an odd Facebook presence. That's where she kind of communicates with people. But she, she wrote the other day about, she wrote to a man at a reading, kind of apologizing but not apologizing for cutting him off because you say people are usually pretty agreeable and you you push the book back across and they're done but this man had brought his manuscript mm. <laughs> and wouldn't let it go and she's she's also very much about men get enough talking time <laughs> and so she she dismissed him and, and in this in this this post she wrote about how she both wanted him to know that, that she understood he wasn't trying to be in any way you know, harmful, but he was being inappropriate. And she just wrote that on, as kind of a little lesson <laughs> uh, uh, on the internet. But yeah, she, she's terrific. Oh, so earlier when I was talking about things happening uh, slowly and then all of a sudden, not just bankruptcy and success, but I'm reading you at age, mm, what were you, dad, 30? At this, and then I'm reading you now at the same time, and I'm reading the jacket copy for the new book, which says that you set your formidable powers of, of observation towards middle age and mortality. And I think, my God, <laughs> I, I'm a little, I'm, I'm about eight years younger than you, but I, I was in New York around when you were, and I was, and so I, I'm very much, you know, reading and thinking like, wow, the cliches of time flying are just so true. Well, well, one thing, like generally speaking, when a book comes out, I always thought it was your editor who wrote the jacket flap for your book, but, but more often it's the editorial assistant who writes it. And so it's weird because I really love my editor, mm -hmm. and then it's weird when the jacket flap would come in because all of a sudden then I'm the editor, and, and I have to say, well, this isn't good enough, and well, this isn't your best work. But there's a guy named Paul Constant. I was just going to ask you about that. Go ahead. Well, he he uh, he used to be the book editor at The Stranger, uh. and he's just a really smart guy. And so I pay him to write my jacket flap, and I don't I don't want to be his boss either. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So I say whatever you want to do, and then send it to my editor, and you guys can work it out. Um. Because I don't have any concept of what my books are about, and I have no concept <laughs> of myself as a writer um, or of my place, uh, or uh, I, I don't know what my books mean. I don't know if there's a – I mean I didn't realize until this morning that turtles are mentioned twice in my book mm -hmm. in different stories. Yeah, I wrote down turtles. Yeah. Airports, airplanes, animals, language. Yeah, I mean – I don't notice that stuff, but it's not my job to notice it. <laughs> it's not my job to be self-aware. <laughs> it's my job to write about myself, but it's not my job to be self-aware. But it was, it's funny because it's such tiny type, but it's the first time I've ever noticed a jacket copy with a credit. Oh, uh, you're probably right. Um, so there you go, Paul, yeah. Paul Constant. Well, I, you know what? I didn't want Paul to... I mean, he's a professional, and and I don't I don't, I don't know. It just seemed I don't know why. If if you're going to work on something like that, why shouldn't you? Uh, one time I paid David Rakoff to write my book jacket, 
my flap copy. And then one time I did it myself, but I did it, I wrote a poem. No, was it a, one time I wrote a poem, and that was for the Squirrel Seeks Chipmunk jack, jacket flap. And then, oh, I, I wrote it for uh, When You Won't Go Up to the Flames, but it made the book sound like it was a mystery book. <laughs> and I thought it was pretty clever, but no one ever said anything to me about it. <laughs> um, yes. Well, I, I like that you sometimes will. You never feel the need to over-explain a joke, uh, which is great uh, restraint. I do I do in person sometimes. Oh, <laughs> sure. Well, not explain it, but yeah, I mean, I guess. I, you know what? I don't like to dissect a joke. You know, when people will. I, there was something. When I was on this most recent tour, there was something I read on, something I read in the newspaper, and I laughed so hard, and I thought, I can't wait to read this on stage. And it was an article in the Washington Post, and it, it was the day after Stormy Daniels appeared on television. Mm -hmm. There was an article about her being harassed online, and one of the hundreds and hundreds of letters that was written in in response to that comments said, um, you know, I'm not worried that Miss Daniels will, won't be able to defend herself. Anyone who's seen her films knows that she is certainly capable of taking it on the chin. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and I laughed so hard, and audiences groaned every night. They would groan. And I, I said, I don't expl I understand this. Why aren't you laughing? This is funny. And the I, woman came up and said, I think I can tell you what your problem is. She said, you need to say that Mike Tyson took it on the chin, but that Stormy Daniels can take it on the chin while maintaining eye contact. Mm. And it's like something tells me that adding Mike Tyson to that is not going to improve his scene. No, it, it loses its pop. Um, but I see her point. No, no, it was kind of her way of saying that's not funny in a way. But it is funny. But I, but I think sometimes audiences were thinking, wait a minute, where does he come down on Storm? Is that about? And it's not about. It's not a joke about Stormy Daniels. It's a joke about a porn actress taking it on the chin. Yes. But somebody said, you know what? I think that people are groaning because every woman in the audience is taking it on the chin. You know, and they're like, uh, you know, just what that feels like. And then somebody came up the other day and said, oh, do you mean taking it on the chin like balls slapping her on the chin? I said, no, I think I'm just talking about calm on her yes. chin. <laughs> Cleared that right up. Uh, yeah. That reminds me of, oh, when I was <laughs> talking about, uh, about understating, uh, I'm wondering whether it was understatement or whether you really weren't getting something that might be the case, and that is why... Amy's computer is this is from Little Guy, the third essay in the book. Mm -hmm. Why Amy's computer is dirtier than yours when you search Google? Right. Somebody said maybe I have a protective thing on oh, my I was thinking though it it also kind of Google is constantly spying on us and calibrating based on the searches we've already done. So you might talk to Amy about that. <laughs> <laughs> but it really is true. But, you know, I read that on stage one night. I was in East Hampton, mm -hmm. and I read that, and Brooke Shields was in the audience. Mm -hmm. And Brooke Shields said, I'm not 50. She was really nice. Mm -hmm. She was really lovely. 
But she said, I'm not 50. I don't know why you would Google women in their 50s and I would come up. But she was maybe like 49 at the time. She wanted to clear that up. Well, it's just one of those situations and you think, what are the odds? You're going to mention somebody and they're going to be in the audience. And all I had said was that, oh, you know, on my, when I Google Amy, on Amy's computer, if you say, what does a woman in her 50s look like? You get, you know, you'd think you would type in, what does the inside of a woman in her 50s look like? Mm -hmm. And if I do it, then I would get pictures of Brooke Shields and I don't remember who the other actress was, uh, smiling. And then Brooke Shields just happened to be in the audience. Is your friend Janet from the Peace Calypso ready for the Sedaris bump? Is her website ready? The, 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 the Wood Interpretation Society prepared? <laughs> well, she just had... That's so funny. I saw Janet a week ago, and we were talking about this. And she showed me some of her new work. And she said she was mentioned somewhere, and she hadn't gotten a bump yet. But I'm really hoping she gets one from the book. Her, Because what she does now is she just... Uh, for a while, she would get the plywood, and then she would, you know, color in the grain. But now she just just studies it and decides what it is. And so I just was at her house last week in Omaha, and I looked at um, her new work. And like, one was a chihuahua? <laughs> it's just a little piece of wood. Perhaps we should briefly explain what we're talking about here. Uh, do you want to? It's my friend Janet Carkeek, and she's an artist. And she has something called the Wood Interpretation Society. So she just looks, studies a piece of wood and will say, look, it's a raccoon looking in a mirror. And you're like, yes, yeah, exactly what it is. Which is mentioned in the title piece from the book. <laughs> yes. <laughs> how did you choose that piece? And how did you choose the title? Your pieces are often more reflective of the whole piece. The Calypso seems it's a quick mention of a name that a cat could have. And it's the title of the book. Right. Well, because I wanted a short title, because my next book title is going to be long. I mean, the second part of the diary collection is going to be called A Carnival of Snackery. So I wanted something short. And none of the, I don't know, when I looked at the titles of the essays, you know, some of the individuals, like if I were to name the book after an essay, um, a lot of them were fine for titles for essays, but like Company Man, Now We Are Five, Stepping Out, A House Divided. House Divided sounds okay. Leviathan sounds okay. Um, but The Spirit World, in retrospect, that sounds okay. I don't know, Calypso just sounded sort of light and... But see, then I didn't think to later about Calypso, you know, the, the Greek story Calypso. Um, that, that takes place on an island. And then Emerald Isle, yes, where I buy this house. Mm -hmm. And see, the, the guy who did the book cover, he was thinking beach house, you know, knotty pine paneling. That that's how the cover would fit in with the title of the book. And it serendipitously all came together. And I hadn't thought about the, the island of Calypso at all. Well, I should have probably put a little bit more thought into that before giving it the book title name. You know what I mean? You're right. It's a title. It's one, one mention in the book, and it's a stupid name for a cat. And that's the name of the book. Last time we spoke, I know I wanted to bring it up, but I felt self-conscious about it. I don't remember whether I did, but it didn't make it into the episode, so I think it didn't. You mentioned 
David Ruckoff having written copy for you. And recently someone, besides David, who died, uh, someone died who I spent, like, the last few years. They were very old. But I spent the last few years, like, I'd drive by their house and I'd see if lights were on. I'd never go knock if I, unless I, I never visited and now they're gone. I have always, and it reminded me of, of their, those those people in life who you regret not having spent more time with, and then it's too late. But I uh, burned a bridge with him for a couple years after college. He showed up. Uh, I had moved to San Francisco. I guess it was more like <clears throat> six years after college, 10 years. And his first book was out, and he was doing really well. And, and I went to, the, went to his reading, and I felt like David blew me off. I'm sure he was, you know, it was you know, new celebrity and it was weird. And, you know, and I had chips on my shoulder and I just was like, well, that's Wait, it. you felt like David Rakoff? Yes. Now? Which in retrospect, I was in my 20s. I was I had a chip on my shoulder. Um, uh, but and then I didn't, you know, I didn't really I read him, but I, I didn't make any effort to, you know, be somewhere he was going to be or. And then years and years and years later, we reconnected. Uh, when I started a little nonprofit, and he gave some books to, and we had a drink in New York, and I was like, "Oh, what a waste of time not knowing this amazing person better all these years." So yeah, because I was going to say, I would imagine that you misread that. Absolutely. It's just hard for me to imagine David being ugly to anybody. I mean, even if David, you know, if if David and I, if David were to tell me about somebody who he disliked. And then that person walked into the room. David would have been lovely to that person. I'm not suggesting that David was two-faced, just that he had some of the best manners I've ever seen. I, I think he he had nothing but goodwill for me, and I was being like probably bitter and jealous at the time. But I'm older now. I'm a little better. <laughs> I did want to ask you what have you been? I know you like to listen to people talking on the radio. Have you been listening to anything that you'd want to mention? Um, well, I mean, not that it needs my help or anything, but I think that that New York Times podcast that they started doing, The Daily, is really good. They'll do a, they'll talk about something, and I think, oh, I don't care about that. But they make me care. They're really good. But I haven't heard, you know, there are podcasts that people say, oh, you got to listen to this. It's really funny. But a lot of times it's just a bunch of people sitting around. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Mm-hmm. Waiting for an editor to show up. I yeah, think. I will listen to those sometimes, kind of in a driving along way, and just come and go. I I have to admit, I mean, I don't think you're going to find it offensive, but I listen to theft by finding as I drive along, and I I go off on little flights of fancy and realize I've missed a couple months of entries, and sometimes I back up, and sometimes I just make it this kind of imagination scape. Well, a woman, I met a woman, and she I got a letter from a woman rather. And her mother, she listened to Self Theft by Finding with her 86-year-old mother in the car. They listened to part of it. Mm-hmm. And then they got to their destination, and her mother said, is it all? <clears throat> her mother seemed to enjoy it. And she said, is the whole book this way? Is it all that woman reading her diary? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Did it change her? I wonder if her mind was just blown. <laughs> <laughs> or did her daughter and just to me, say yes? It would just be so different if it was a woman, yeah. you know. But it would be interesting to listen to it, like if it's a woman's story, you know. 
Did did you? I forget who told you this. Just uh, uh, someone at a show. A woman who wrote me a letter. Oh, okay. I wonder if she said to her mother, "Yes, yes, it is. <laughs> it's all her." Um, I have two questions that that thirty year old David made me want to ask you. One is that: Do you? Was there some point? Did you see yourself? Do you still see yourself or imagine yourself as a visual artist who ended up writing? Or did you always see yourself as both? Or do you still make visual art for yourself? No, I don't make visual art anymore. But, I mean, I realized... I mean, I realized pretty soon into whatever you could call a career I had at it that I cared more about writing than I cared about visual art. Mm -hmm. A short story that I would read would stick with me much more than a painting that I saw or a sculpture that I saw. And the other the other question was, have you and Amy collaborated on anything in the last couple of decades and would you ever want to? Um, we wrote a bunch of plays together. Right, I know. But I feel like that seems like it was a while ago now. Maybe I'm wrong. It was a while ago, but, but it seemed to belong to that particular time. You know? I mean, and David Rakoff was a big part of that time. And we were all living in New York City and La Mama, you know, allowed us to do whatever we wanted to do whenever we wanted to do it and was just there for us. And it just had to do with us being young and us being here and us being together in the same town and uh, us smoking a lot of dope. <laughs> um, so I don't know. It seemed to belong to that time to me. Like, and, 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 and it's not anything, and I think back on it really fondly. But it's almost like I could no longer do that again than I could be on the swim team again. Were you on the swim team? Yeah. I forgot that, if I've read that. When, when I was a kid. Also, I went out to dinner one night with, um, I was out at dinner with some people, and uh, John Lahr was there, you know, the drama critic of The New, York Times, of the New Yorker. And he was talking about somebody, and he said, playwriting is a young man's game, you know, or a young woman's game. And I thought, by and large, that's kind of true, you know. When you're young, you're pretty sure that what you have to say is very important and people need to hear it. <laughs> and I, I don't in any way feel like what I have to say is important. But maybe I did when we were working on those plays. Yeah, but it just sort of faded. Are any of them published? No, we offered, they, people offered to publish them, but what made them funny were the people in them. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think if, if you were just put the words on paper and anybody else were to do them, I couldn't even bear it when somebody got sick and an understudy had to take over. Mm -hmm. I couldn't bear to watch the plays. So they were written very specifically for the people who were in them. Mm -hmm. Oh, and you, I was just listening to you talking about how when you had to fill in for someone and how miserable that was. Yeah, and that, well, that's because I had to be the one on stage. I hated that. But... But, you know, like we it, would, it didn't get to the point like, you know, we'd do a play and we'd say, what would you like to do on stage? What are your skills? Oh, you speak Japanese? Great. We'll write a scene where you speak Japanese. You want to dance? Great. You want to sing? Perfect. You want to write a song? Or should we write the song? And so they were catered. You know, we, we, we really paid attention to the actors that we worked with. And they were wonderful. And they were really funny. And, and if they came up with ad-libbed line that was better than the one that was written down, well, we'd go with their line. Sure. 
because it was just we we're just trying to serve the show, not our own egos in that respect. That's it, right there. Oh, I was glad to see the insult piece made it into the book, even though I don't think you said there was nowhere to publish it. Oh yeah, but I've uh, that line when you reach out my ass and jerk off my shit. That's that's gold. Mm -hmm. It is gold. <laughs> gold. Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> I also. It's funny. I don't think anything in that would make an editor blanch as much as. I'm wondering if, as as a Jew, I can say that there is an incredibly funny anti-Semitic joke in the book, in in the piece. Sorry, uh, that the flight attendant made the flight attendant. Uh, it was Christmas time. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't want to kill it if you want to say. No, it was it was, it was a pilot told me that he um, that it was a he. This pilot flew the Miami. Um, he he flew Newark to Palm Beach, and one of the flight attendants. It was just a couple of days before Christmas, and they landed in Palm Beach, and the flight attendant got on, and she said. Um, you know, we may seated until the fasten seatbelt sign had been turned off. Um, and I'd like to wish everybody a Merry Christmas. And to those of you already standing, Happy Hanukkah. And I, I believe she lost her job. Oh, I believe she would today. I don't know how long ago that was. But, you know, to an extent, again, I can get away with saying this with some people, I guess. Maybe not with others. But it's funny because it's true. <laughs> it, it is yeah, what something it is. told me she she called it, you know. Uh, all right. Um yeah. Oh, two last things. Uh one is did you ever get back in touch? I never asked you this. With the woman who you sent the joking pro Trump email to who then blocked yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my yeah. god. Mm -hmm. We've been friends for a long time and so we I but I had to wind up calling her. Mhm. Mm and uh <clears throat> yeah. Thank God. Uh, and the last thing, because last time we did talk about the, the man and his son and the pizza joke, uh, any, any stories from the road, this last tour of, of people doing funny or inappropriate things? Gosh, I mean, there was a lot. I mean, I'm just kind of trying to sift through it. Uh, everything that happened on this last tour, uh, gosh, I was just trying to, I just going to mention something to somebody the other day and it flew right out of my head <laughs> um but i did i'd heard some okay jokes here's one okay joke someone told me on this tour that a man goes to barnes and noble and says do you have that book about little penises and the clerk says i'm afraid it's not in yet and he said that's the one <laughs> <laughs> oh on that note, is that are we going out on that? <laughs> We're going to go out on that. All right. But write me in a few weeks, and let's try to get together. I certainly will. It's great to talk to you. You too. Thanks again. Take care. I'm sure I don't need to tell you that you can find David Tedaris's Calypso, or I highly recommend. I highly recommend them both, but Theft by Finding is a great diary it's great to listen to as you drive along wherever you're going uh wherever books are sold you can find this show at 15 minutes jamieberger.com that's the digits one and five for the 15 and you can figure out the rest uh you can also find us on itunes spotify stitcher 
wherever pods are cast. I'd like to thank you for your support these two years and leave you with one last joke that I heard on WAMC Public Radio, of all places, from a guest who I can't remember who it was, but I don't think he came up with it himself. And it goes a little something like this. We don't know much about Stormy Daniels beyond the fact that her first pet's name was Stormy and she grew up on Daniels Avenue. Coming up this month are people who've been bumped the last couple of months because of a hectic schedule. Uh, comedian Keith Lowell Jensen. Part two of my conversation uh, with former Playboy editorial director Chris Napolitano. And... My conversation with my old friend Sonny Smith of Sunny and the Sunsets. Ed Patnode engineers this show. Christian Kandari made the music. This is 15 Minutes. I'm Jamie Berger.